Take five. <laughs> Welcome to Sounding Point Podcast. My name is Joseph Christensen, and with me today is my good friend Eric Silberger. He is a top prize winner at Tchaikovsky International Violin Competition, as well as the Michael Hill International Violin Competition. He is a founder of Hawaii International Music Festival and the executive director of strings at Classical Bridge Music Festival. Thank you so much for being with me today, Eric. Thank you. It's great to see you again, Joe. <laughs> it is fantastic. So I just wanted to set the stage and and tell a story about when we first met, which was all the way back in 2012. So we met at the Castleton Festival, which was Lauren Mazel's music festival that he hosted on his estate in rural Virginia. And it was an interesting little festival in that the main area where concerts were produced was in a giant tent that was put up in the middle of this field in uh, Lauren Mazel's huge estate out there in Virginia. And one night, the orchestra was, uh, and the opera company was playing Barber of Seville. And there was a windstorm. It was actually in the news all throughout the East Coast that there was this tremendous windstorm that downed power lines and um, did a lot of property damage all throughout the East Coast. And we happened to be playing an opera right in the middle of it. <laughs> we started by hearing the walls of the tent just, just uh, moving around at a rapid rate. And then very quickly, the electricity went off and there were only a few emergency lights on the sides, which were powered by emergency generators. Now, this is in the middle of an opera performance. So there's a lot of people on stage. <laughs> there's an entire production going on. Uh, Lauren Mazel is conducting the orchestra in the pit. And then all of a sudden, everyone is cast into darkness. The performance obviously stops immediately. And uh, for a few minutes, everyone... And, and of course, it's a sold-out audience, so... The entire audience and the entire orchestra, the entire opera company is sitting there in silence and no one really knew what to do. Um, cue Eric Silberger, <laughs> who talks, who he stands up, he offers his services to Lauren Mazel in the dark and Lauren's like, go, you know, and, uh, and he stands up on stage and he starts regaling the audience with, I believe it was some Gershwin. Uh, ain't necessarily so, I believe. There is ain't necessarily so. Some Paganini and some Bach as well. That's right. You played Bach G minor fugue. Mm -hmm. And the applause in between those pieces was unlike any applause I've experienced before or since. <laughs> it was a memory that anyone who is in that room will always remember. And it was because Eric was, um, he had the kind of thought I, I thought, I, uh, realized in that moment that uh, what everyone needed right then was to hear music that what everyone needed right then was to feel normal or to feel okay and you took leadership in that moment and you made everyone feel welcome and at home and and that something special was going on so that was a very meaningful interesting time and uh so yeah welcome on the podcast it's a pleasure no, thank, to have you. You. thank you thank <laughs> you so you, uh, speaking of being stuck in places, um, <laughs> you've been in Hawaii for quite a while. How, how about tell us a little bit about why? 
Well, so I have the Hawaii International Music Festival out here, and we were completing a tour uh, of three of the islands out here on March 9th. And just around that time, I was supposed to fly to Korea for some other concerts, and they got canceled because Korea was hit a bit earlier. And so just around that time, and my friend said, oh, why don't you stay out here? You know, I, I have one more concert out here you can play and join. So I was like, okay, I don't have any plane flights anywhere right now, so I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And um, invite my girlfriend over as well to, to join on that. And we actually, uh, he said, well, just, you know, stick around until, you know, this COVID thing blows over a bit. So very good friend, Joshua Nakazawa, cellist, he, he, we, we ended up staying there far too long. So f- <laughs> finally, uh, we were able to get our own apartment out here, um, trying to avoid traveling as much as possible for now. But uh, yeah, it's just been a very big surprise. And actually what ended up happening out of that was we were quarantined together at the beginning of that as a string quartet. We had four of us together. So we actually recorded an album of Queen Lilio Kalani's music. And she was the last um, Wine Marnock. And she was a composer, very prolific composer. I think she wrote around 150 songs. And we had arrangements for string quartet that uh, violist Duane Padilla was making. Uh, and so it was, it was really quite fascinating because she was under house arrest when she wrote the music as well. And we were under house arrest, essentially. <laughs> so, you know, th- those types of ar- arrangements, uh, those types of feelings, they're really special uh, because they're not the best circumstances, but it, it does bring you together in a certain way. I, I think what you brought up with that concert that happened to Castleton, um, I just was, so I was in the audience for that particular performance listening. Um, and I had participated, of course, in the festival prior to that and in the orchestra as well as solo, but there's um, a chamber. But the thing was that I just felt so uncomfortable there because there was a pitch black darkness for a few minutes, like four minutes. And I was just thinking like, I was talking to the conductor and then next to me, I was like, maybe I should play something. Is somebody, I mean, this is just really uncomfortable right now. Just pitch black darkness with the wind howling outside. So then he, was, she, he went to Nancy Gustafson, who then was like announcing and she was the executive director of the festival. And that entire thing started. And then Mazo was like, no, oh, keep going. And uh, it was just um, a captive audience because literally at some point, somebody, this guy, you know, he, he, he looks like he came out of a movie, you know, one of the survival movies. Like, and he, he said, guys, all the trees have come down everywhere. This is the safest structure anywhere in the county yeah. right now. Nobody yeah. should go outside. We're taking the bulldozers outside right now. We're trying to clear the roads, but everybody, you have to stay here. So it was a literal <laughs> captive audience. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I forgot that you were in the audience there mm-hmm. and you happened yeah. to have your violin there. Yeah. I was just underneath. Well, I never, it's never more than a few feet from me, generally speaking. Yeah. So that's uh it's interesting the parallels between that and also between Queen Lilio Kalani and yeah. and you guys. So where are you now? Uh, so right now I'm in Honolulu. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, tell us a little bit. So you did a Kickstarter. I thought that was it was really interesting at the time that we were all panicking. You had like this really well produced Kickstarter for this album. It's like, what? Where's this coming from? <laughs> this is awesome. So. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about the Kickstarter and where the album is right now. Uh, so the album's in pre-production. It should be finished uh, late this month um, and ready for production, like to be to be uh, shipping out around the end of this month. So uh, I think people should be able to pre-order it on the site, uh, Mana Music Hawaii. Um, I think there, 
there was an article that came out in the Star Advertiser, and it's just been amazing to see the support, but also from everyone on Kickstarter. You know, thank you so much, everybody, um, and for making the album reality. Fortunately, Dwayne Padilla and myself, um, well, he's had amazing equipment forever. I started buying up in uh, December a lot of audio and uh, professional video equipment as well. And we pooled our resources. And so we were able to basically have a full functioning recording studio there. Um, and that was really um, what allowed us to just kind of have every single week he'd come out with a new arrangement or two. And mm-hmm. then we'd record it after reading the Queen songs, um, the songbook. So we'd see the history and the context and the actual lyrics. Then we'd record, then the same thing would happen. So, I mean, that's very unusual in recording because usually you have like a three-day period of six or eight hours a day and that's it. You have that's to hope right. for the best or, yeah, <laughs> good like editing. The, like <laughs> the album we produced together. <laughs> yes. I mean, it wasn't quite as uh, luxurious on the time frame. No, we had about uh, six hours. Yeah. That was recorded in San Francisco and... Uh, mm-hmm. Joe, that was amazing with all your help with the, the San Francisco Conservatory and getting the space there. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, a lot of things happened that day. Um, yeah. So ended up being about six hours for a full album, but it went out, it turned out well. And that's, that's released on Centaur as well with the Gloriosa piano trio, two friends, Uni yeah. Han and uh, Kevin Bay. Shout out to Gloriosa. Yep. <laughs> so I cannot wait to have the album once it comes out. What can people expect? I think that's a surprise to a lot of people that uh, I think a lot of people have heard of Queen Lilio Kalani, but not that she's a composer. Why is that? Like, so what, what almost style is the music? Well, she's from a classical tradition, but um, it's, it's really hard without just uh, having people listen to it. Yeah. I think one of the best ways is most people have actually heard this piece called Aloha Oi. Mm-hmm. My singing is not mm-hmm. right today, but uh, you can actually hear Fritz Kreisler made an arrangement of her music, of her singing, uh, uh, her song. And uh, so anyone who'd like to listen to that, they can listen to that or the album. And you can actually see uh, the order we're doing it is chronologically. So you can actually see the progression of her mm-hmm. style and composition. That's so cool. Did Chrysler record uh, Aloha Oi? Chrysler did. Yes. Huh. Around cool. probably around 1921 or so. I thought I'd heard all of Chrysler's recordings, but I, I guess I missed that one. So I'll yeah, have to go look it up. That's so cool. So your and what is the album called? Um, Queen Lilio Kalani, uh, Mana Music String Quartet, or Mana Mana. Yeah, I think that's okay. Go. I, we'll I, put... I, somebody asked the title. It's just it, it, it's <laughs> beautiful cover art. Uh, Maybe I'll send yes. it to you so you can add it oh, in yeah. somewhere. But <laughs> yes, absolutely. So we'll we'll put put it in the links to wherever this. Yeah, yeah. Is, but but it's it was done by a local Hawaiian artist who is really fantastic, and he incorporated elements of Hawaii culture, Hawaiian culture, into the album. Uh, so you can really see that in the front and the back of the cover. So you have had a kind of history with Hawaii at this point. Uh, could you talk about starting the Hawaii International Music Festival and, yeah, how that how that has progressed? Uh, it started in 2016, um, and that was after a conversation with uh, my co-founder, um, Amy Shormand Obra. She's a Metropolitan Opera Soprano, uh, really fantastic singer. And we actually met at another festival uh, through a Castleton connection, Daniel Lelchuk. Uh, and out. Yep, fantastic cellist. And he's also running a very great podcast and 
recently as well. Um, and so what happened is because of our conversation, she mentioned, oh, we should go out to Hawaii and do a concert together at some point. And there's this outreach need in the Big Island specifically. So we had a, a conversation shortly after and, you know, it, things moved very quickly. So we, we actually uh, really compressed time. But uh, a lot of these things never happen unless you really just go for it. And yeah. sometimes put that energy forward, even if you don't feel like you're fully prepared for everything. And mm -hmm. the, re the sad reality is I don't think anyone's ever 100% prepared for any situation. Because the second you prepare, your plans change. Because what happens if all of a sudden on the day, you know, there is some kind of accident or a fire drill goes off or, you know, anything can happen. So you, mm -hmm. you have to be ready to just adapt to the situation. So I think what running happens, a festival is kind of like that. <laughs> happens if you just go to a nice opera to listen and all of a sudden the power goes out. <laughs> yeah. That's an, that's a great example, you know, yeah. and uh, actually, so I started out and then actually Mazelle ran with it and some of the singers. So they actually, Devon Tynes, fantastic singer also, started singing and he's doing very well now. And a couple other singers, Mizzou actually came out and started conducting at one point uh, and two singers and a pianist. Mm -hmm. And it was just like one of the most magical moments <laughs> yeah. for me as well. It's just, just to be able to be part of that evening and everyone who was there, you know, that's, that's what I hope musical performances are more like they're events. They're mm -hmm. not just another concert you go to and you say, Oh, I heard a concert last week. It was nice. You go to a concert and you say, wow, that was something I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Yeah. Or yeah. that was something that was, you know, it added something to my life at the end of the day. I feel like as musicians, we all choose to be musicians due to some collection of events like that, whether it's a performance or a series of performances or some mentor we had or some encouragement we got. Mm -hmm. The decision to become a musician is almost like this gradual thing through the through these moments of inspiration and through these moments of realizing how meaningful it is and um yeah that was definitely one of those moments it was really incredible so speaking of which um your uh, oh yeah so going back to castleton festival um oh yeah yeah going back to castleton festival when I went to Castleton, I was, um, I think I was a sophomore and mm -hmm. I was going to San Francisco Conservatory of Music and it was a really amazing experience. I mean, I never worked with a conductor like Lauren Mazel. That was a, a wake up call <laughs> as far as the, uh, the standards required and, and also just the, the general level of artistry and, and, um, inspiration that comes with working with uh with an artist like that i talked to with uh, lydia a little bit about that yeah um, lydia Komskaya. Mm -hmm. working with uh, lauren mizel and also um meeting you is was really influential on me because uh, to me because i hadn't really had that much exposure to um to this world i i came from this smaller town i was at conservatory but i hadn't had a ton of exposure to like people like Lauren Mazel or you who have been in all of these competitions. And so what was really helpful for me and I really appreciate about you was in that time, you actually helped me. You gave me a lot of advice. I would come to you and be like, how do you practice scales? <laughs> you know, or what is this? And, and you would actually give me some, for some advice and feedback amongst which um, to name off the top of my head, you encouraged me to practice thirds. 
um, quite quite a bit of thirds. Um, you encouraged me to um, try to cover all keys in in one day and in one practice session. Um, you had talked to, oh, you to- told me about the Ruggiero Ricci book on left yeah, hand technique. Left hand technique, yeah, it's a great. Book. And yeah, it's a great book. And it's funny in a recent. Uh, months I've seen it popping up. A lot of uh, Instagram violinists have been posting that stuff from there, and I'm like, man, you know, Eric was ahead of the curve on this stuff. <laughs> didn't well, you, you know, know? Didn't you know him or meet? Him? I played for him back in 2005, and he he sent me a very nice letter after my mom, I think, had sent very when I was very young a recording of Scottish fantasy I played. And he sent back a very nice note, and then um, there was a period of time. I think it was. November 15th, 2005, if I remember. <laughs> Somebody can double check that someday. But I think that's when he was visiting New York and I saw him. And I had like a two-hour session with him. Just It just went on for a very long time and touched on many concertos, caprices, different things. Uh, and just his values, you know, in terms of violin playing and how he approached the instrument, I think were so different than um, so many other people. Where he saw the violin not as he saw it more as a way of approaching different questions and arriving at solutions. I don't think he saw the violin in terms of, I'm talking specifically about technique music, of course, always is the end result. And sometimes where you should start with too, uh, always pretty much, but it's, it's more that he would kind of really grapple with issues and physically observe them in a much more meaningfully, uh, analytical way. Mm-hmm. So he would look at various problems. And I think part of it comes from just really, he would play the 24 caprices every day as a warm up. He wrote me in a letter once, you should play all three fugues every day. Uh, I did that when I was your age, and it's very useful. Um, and, and I think there's something about living your life with some of that music that you start realizing like, oh, why am I just positioning my hand, you know, this way versus mm-hmm. this way versus like, it's just very small adjustments. Am I playing from the knuckle? Am I playing from the fingertip? You know, all these very small details that um, over a lifetime really add up to meaning that you're much more efficient and you play more physically capably, even if physically certain things become more difficult because you've simplified the process and made it even easier. So I think that's something that Milstein did very well. He did. um, And there are some other people that do that very well. But I think... um, he revolutionized a lot of what it meant uh, to be playing certain repertoire of Paganini. Uh, one of the first recordings of Paganini 24 Caprices. And just, yeah, he was a, a huge influence actually on a friend of mine, uh, Sean Lee, who studied with him. And because of Sean Lee, we were, one year I saw him playing and, uh, you know, it was great. The next year I was like, what happened? It's, you know, something changed. And uh, it was Ricci had basically said, you, you won't learn this at Julia. So he he was basically talking about the stuff that was Ricci specific. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not going to be uh, teaching stuff that other people are going to be talking about, but like specifically his brand of left-hand technique mm-hmm. and all the 24 Caprices, all the box, very few people complete all those cycles during their education. So um, then I just started hearing about the left-hand technique book from Sean. And then from there, I just kept rolling with it and, developing certain certain ideas speaking of um speaking of completing all of those uh, cycles in school you've not only done that (laughs) 
my be- my belief is that you also uh, completed a rather uh, ambitious program at a, a festival. Was it in Iceland? Where you so, performed yeah. all of those things. So, so I would, you, it, would you mind? Yeah, uh, just if people don't know, just uh, just uh, recount how that went. It's called um, Festival of the Violin. Uh, it was in Iceland, I think, in 2014, probably, or yeah, 13 or 14. Um, and what happened was I had played in a volcano in Iceland prior to that. Um, and I'd met a few people there and I was like, oh, this is such a beautiful country. And, uh, you know, I, I'd love to come back again. And some people had basically said, oh, yeah, we, there's a music festival here. You should maybe play there and there. And so between two music festivals, I was able to make my own Festival of the Violin, which was five concerts of seven hours of solo violin music. Um, And it featured, and I don't recommend anyone ever do this, but it was the complete Bach, Paganini, uh, Ernst, and Isai. (laughs) Like for solo violin, most of it. For any violinist who hears that, it's it's unimaginably brutal. (laughs) No, and especially I hadn't learned a lot of it too. So I was working like... 16 hours a day (laughs) physically I could only handle about eight hours a day so I would stop after eight hours physically but then I'd be staring at the music trying to burn it into my and then just closing my eyes and hearing it and Mm -hmm. taking multiple naps per day because then the brain the brain resets so you can learn you can basically fill in two or three days of practicing that was the only way to learn like uh two or three hours of you know solo music in in Mm -hmm. the case of like that one week and that was that was no one should do that, but I recommend everyone do it slowly and gradually over time because it's right. really meaningful. Right. Cause it, um, the festival didn't get scheduled and confirmed until very last minute. Mm-hmm. And at that point I was, uh, you know, I had some other things going on, so I didn't really have time to normally I try to pace things out if I see something's far ahead. But in this case, it was like a week or two weeks before that it got confirmed. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh I, uh, my, a friend of mine, Michael Delphine, shout out. He was just on the podcast. Um, he worked with Leon Fleischer a lot, the late oh, pianist, yeah. um, RIP. Um, and he said that one of the things Fleischer told him was kind of interesting. And I, I kind of reacted negatively to it at first. But, and I wish I could remember the exact words, but it was something to the effect of, of um, embrace procrastination which was like, huh, that's not something you hear from your teachers very often. <laughs> Isn't somebody always but, procrastinating? I mean, <laughs> we're procrastinating breathing if we hold our breath. We're procrastinating, you know, I mean, it, it, at one point, I, you know, I think procrastination is more guilt because it's like we should be doing this and we're not doing it. And so from that view, it's negative. But right. we're always procrastinating something. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's my on way of one... getting away with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Good move. Um, but but furthermore, in something like something incredibly ambitious, like seven hours of the most difficult violin music, and also preparing a good deal of it, maybe in the le- weeks leading up to it, if you had waited until you were ready to do it, would it have ever happened? Well, part of it was I was, you know, talking to Omar Oliveira and I don't know how old he was exactly, but maybe 60s around that, you know, give or take some years. And uh, at the time I talked to him about it 
And he was saying, oh, I'm, I'm doing all the sixes I, and I was like, oh, have you ever done it? And I, I don't think he had at that point. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just remember thinking, I, I want to go through these things early in life. Yeah. So you don't have a bucket list, so to speak, but when you come back to it, it's not the first time you're seeing it later in life. Yeah. Just because physically certain things, I've seen some really great artists who have a certain standard they want to up maintain. And when you're in the full, you know, con- like this is an exceptional period where you actually have time, but like if you're constantly performing and you want to bring in certain repertoire that you've never played, like a Ligeti violin concerto Bartok solo sonata or some other ones, and you're in your 60s or 70s, uh, some people might give it pause and say, well, I could do that or I could do a couple of Beethoven sonatas I've played before. Yeah. So it, it becomes a balancing of like, what do I want to spend my time on? Yeah. Do I want to be spending 10 hours to get three seconds of music just the way I want to want it to sound? So I, you know, while I'm kind of naive about certain things, I, I plan on trying to delve into repertoire where uh, I might not uh, necessarily be as likely to want to pursue some of that music later on. So interesting, huh? Yeah, I mean, music that's great music, but mm-hmm. it's good to kind of go through those. There's this book by Brian Tracy called "Eat a Frog," um, "Eat That Frog," basically something along those lines. <laughs> and he talks about how the first thing in the morning you should do is should be the hardest thing of your entire day. Like eating a frog would not be something most that's that pleasant for most people. I mean, for a few people, you can get used to it. And yeah. I think that's my point. You get, you frog have to eat that frog good, every <laughs> Kermit, I feel so bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so every, every day having that kind of uh, discipline of, of kind, kind of uh, just pushing yourself mentally. Uh, and I think that's part of what those, those projects are for. It's to push yourself to see what your human potential is in terms of what are my limits? What are, what, what am I actually capable of? Uh, and failing and being willing to fail. Um, and I think that's something that's part of the process of being an artist and being a, a, a person in general. Um, you want to fail as many times as possible, preferably learn from other people's mistakes and avoid you know, issues as much as possible, but be willing to give that vulnerability to really make mistakes and to go for things. That doesn't mean like you just say, oh, that note's out of tune, I'll let it go. What I mean is, like if there's a piece you don't feel comfortable with, program it somewhere you know that you feel comfortable playing it uh, a bit more, even if you don't really ever feel like, nah, that piece, I just don't quite get it yet. Mm-hmm. And then over time, you just live with it and you eventually feel like you can play it. There are some artists like um, Claudio Rao, the fantastic great pianist who, uh, and Horowitz, who, who had huge repertoires of music they never played. Mm-hmm. And what I would have given to just hear some of that music. Yeah. That's beautiful. I think, yeah, I mean, in this quarantine, it's it's given us a chance to figure out what is meaningful to us as artists and as people that we will persevere or we will we will commit to doing almost in spite of a a lack of demand. I mean, any mo- most. I mean, actually, you know, there are some, um, like Quartet San Francisco played Cabrillo, a virtual concert a couple months ago, and that was great. There are, I think presenting organizations are um, starting to pick up the ball a little bit more in terms of creating opportunities. I think the main issue is that when you stream from one location, you can stream from anywhere. 
So there's a bit of redundancy. So for instance, if a solo soloist plays a concert for a certain orchestra and the concert, you know, they're able to play it. I mean, easily somebody could tune in from one place. Whereas mm -hmm. when you have a typical concert season, you have a large engaged audience body that's, you know, sitting in the hall, they have nothing else they're doing yeah. and their full attention is there. So there's, there's a lot of different people who can see it spread out in theory, mm -hmm. you know, you should be able to reach much more people online, but in what kind of context? So I, I think organizations are gradually pivoting in a, in a good way. Um, hopefully this thing doesn't last forever, but you know, not that long, but um, it's good to kind of prepare that just because if everyone had a streaming service, you know, that they could provide for their concerts in the future, then you could reach more people, even if, you know, you're in person. So mm -hmm. I think there's a great value to that. And also it's forcing a lot of organizations to uh, adapt to the age of social media and reach people they might not otherwise reach. I think um, the connection to place is really powerful. And for example, the people who would come out to something like Castleton are the people who live in the surrounding area and have a, almost a kind of, um, you know, connection to that land, a connection to that place. I think that's what it's, it's an interesting um, part of what is compelling about your album, the Queen Lilio Kalani album, that even though you're doing something, a recording project, it's so, um, place specific it's so peep history and place specific to where you are in hawaii and where your your festival is in hawaii is that it it gives a sense of belonging to a place that can often be lacking with totally virtual experiences mm -hmm. so it's really interesting no, you know I, I think virtual experiences have to have more engagement with audience so for instance if you're having a virtual uh, concert you can have a concert you know conversation with audience members following or you have a Q&A or you can basically to have that real-time live connection mm -hmm. production is very hard for live streaming a lot of things can go wrong so a lot of organizations will not be prioritizing that but at the same time I think there's a lot more possibilities once you bring that engagement in because then people relate I mean you look at a lot of um, some of the greatest performances and the things you think about why, why was that such a meaningful moment for you you know, a lot of times it's a context thing too, because your first exposure to something and the feeling you had when that exposure happened can mm -hmm. kind of give you that impression of what it means in your life. So somebody who sees a certain work of music in a movie, then they associate that movie with how they were feeling about that movie and that scene and that character at the time. Mm -hmm. Then the next time they hear that, that music, they're just like, oh, wow, I feel something. It causes a dopamine rush. It's the earworm effect. Mm -hmm. Um, and the same thing can be said that like, if you just get that initial connection to it, then afterwards you can be exposed to it and you have that history with the piece and you grow with the piece. It's kind of looking at like a Monet painting or Picasso or, or a different work. You go to a museum or, or see it digitally these days, uh, in some cases when you can't go inside, but, um, you just look at it for many, many years, especially if you can see it in person, the real thing. And it doesn't really change usually. I mean, most of the paintings should look about the same. They're Hopefully. being pretty well kept, maintained and enclosed, very airtight uh, environments. And so those paintings are a reflection of yourself in a sense, because you're looking at the painting and seeing how your perspective changes relative to the past. So mm -hmm. who are you 
the painting's the painting, but who are we? We're always changing. So I think that's what's really cool. I think back on music that I listened to as a young person, like in kind of teenage years or whatever. And it's, it hits me p- so much more powerfully um, just because of that sense of growing with something and changing while this other thing stays the same, but it to, uh, bound up in it is so much of your own development. So if, yeah, if what we're doing now can somehow be geared towards allowing people to have those experiences, like engagement, just like what you're talking about. Um, I wanted to get to your, um, your Paganini 24 Caprices because it might not have been seven hours. <laughs> no, no. But uh, <laughs> you've done it twice, right? So. Well, yeah, I did it twice in a live stream for Group Muse um, <clears throat> this, since COVID happened. Uh, and the thing about those pieces is I grew up with them partially because I was doing, you know, one a week for a while with Glendictoral. I played some of them for Ricci. And then I, I also just have played some of them for so many concert encores and things. So there are pieces that are kind of like friends, but they're friends who sometimes stay very friendly with you and stay in your fingers. And then some other ones of them, like they, they like to say, Hey, you haven't been talking to me for a while. Come on, get, you know, so you have to, you have to really come back and work on it again. But the thing about those pieces is they're kind of, uh, if you play those in Bach, I think you've got such a foundation from that music, just in terms of how you play the violin and connect to it, that you have a different feeling of you can create and be very spontaneous and present. So I, I very much like playing them, especially if, uh, you know, you have a break, um, then I feel like it's actually good for the player to challenge themselves with certain repertoire. And so I, I bring it back every once in a while. Um, I've played it a, maybe four or five times in concert, concert at this point, but it's just such um, an interesting thing that some artists, you know, you play a certain kind of repertoire for a long time. If you then switch out of that repertoire, it's much harder to play other repertoire. So it's good to kind of balance it. So sometimes I'll play Paganini and then I'll be like, okay, I need to do some Mozart or some Beethoven where I need to switch it up a little bit mm-hmm. because uh, it just requires very different things emotionally and also physically. Yeah. You, um, and I brought it up part, I mean, because it's a, a, a human, a feat of human achievement <laughs> to play all 24 caprices in, in once, um, in one concert live with very few breaks, but also um, you kind of opened it up, opened up the stage um, after the concert to do a Q&A, which is kind of what you're talking about. And I mean, I, I can't speak, I can speak for myself, but I can imagine that if there's uh, a young person there, a young violinist or musician who's there and sees someone accomplish something like that and then is able to talk to them and, and hear from their own hear from the uh, player what it's like and things to think about while they're doing it, then, then that, you know, in a virtual sense is, is creating an opportunity for that connection that is so much harder when you're not doing it in person. Yeah. And also if somebody does it, you know, it can be done. That's, that's, that's a great thing. So when you see a recording of somebody doing something really fantastically, the first thing I think about is like, that sounds like so much fun. I want to do that too. Um, And I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of things, there's all these composers, they write pieces and everyone's like, this is an impossible piece to play. Well, 
in some cases, but very rarely. Usually it's <laughs> either one of two things. It is really hard and the artist thinks it's too too hard. Or number two, the artist just doesn't like the pieces and is coming up with an excuse. <laughs> and I never know which one it is. Yeah. Usually a slight combination, probably. <laughs> <laughs> there was, I mean, in the violin repertoire, uh, there's Tchaikovsky. Impossible. Mm-hmm. I believe Impossible. Brahm, Brahms And then also. our made it harder. That's yeah, the funniest exactly. part. <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, this piece is impossible. Yeah. So I, why don't I just make it a little bit harder? <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, it's, I, <clears throat> that is one of the uh, fun musical history examples of, of a uh, turnaround, if ever there was one. Leopold Auer was the dedicatee of Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto, said it was impossible, and then turned around and made a much harder uh, version of it, which is hilarious. And then and I believe... The teacher of Yasha Heifetz and so right. many other great ones. Nathan <laughs> right. Nathan Milstein, Misha Elman, Tosha Seidel, uh, from Zimbalist, the list goes on, Kathleen Parlow. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Brahms was also considered unplayable when it came out. Um, but, you know, more, more recently you had Barber Concerto. There was that whole, the, the dedicatee of the concerto said that the last movement was unplayable. So I forgot who they got to do it, but. Yeah, it was at Curtis, I think, at the time. So yes. I, probably. But yeah, that that's a great piece. That was actually mm-hmm. another Mazel experience because, uh, he needed somebody to, to play the piece at Castleton. And uh, so I had like very, very short period of time. And that was also one of the strangest things. You know, uh, there are certain times when you cram so much in your brain that you can't play very simple things. So mm-hmm. I crammed that last movement into my brain in about an hour. And I don't know, I feel uncomfortable sharing this, but I basically calculated a lot of this repeats mm-hmm. and uh, there's four minutes and 16 seconds here of this music. I can play this part at least 30 times. Yep. Okay, this part's not working 30 times. I, I was playing with the music, not by memory. Mm-hmm. But but yeah. when you're in that state of like a lot of <laughs> adrenaline and you're, you're, you're really like just pushing yourself and you're like flipping, flipping the script instead of like, oh, this is such a short amount of time. Like if I can't get this after 30 tries, maybe I shouldn't play the violin. <laughs> so, so then when you flip the script like that, then you're, you're kind of able to process things very differently. So I managed to actually put that into my brain. And then I, at the rehearsal, I was playing in Barber. I forget the exact piece by Barber, but it, it was, uh, it had straight quarter notes and I couldn't play. I couldn't play straight quarter notes. I was reading them wrong, like in this rehearsal. And then I had to play the Barber concerto when I was able to do that because those notes were still there. But like, yeah. you can't, it's it's very funny when you actually push yourself to that. And I recommend everyone do it once in a while just to kind of see <laughs> see what it's like. It's just hilarious. <clears throat> yeah, you um you recommended that I I try the 24 caprices after the uh after this uh concert and um I think I'm going to do it. You should do it. No, I'm I mean seriously. No, I'm every everyone everyone who wants to understand themselves better should do it as a violinist. I mean, you know, worst that can happen is is not play them that well. <laughs> yeah, and, and then just don't play them to that many people <laughs> until you <laughs> exactly. feel like you're playing it better. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, then do it again. Yeah. I'll I'll learn them. I'll I'll set a concert for four okay. friends. So and, everybody uh, who's watching this podcast, uh, the date for the concert. Uh, yeah, there we go. 
Is, I, uh, I actually can host on Group Muse. So what what date would you like? <laughs> okay. See October. I'm oh, just kidding. Just kidding. Hey, it could happen. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. All right. It's uh, the 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 uh, commitment has been made on podcast and therefore is inviolable. Okay, you have <laughs> you have a two year period. <laughs> okay, <laughs> two years. I will fill up those two years. I will wait until one month and or one year and nine months, and then I'll learn all of them in three months. Um, but. <laughs> you know embrace procrastination that's what we've learned so far well you know parkinson's law it states that basically however long it takes for something to happen is how long it will take so in other words or i better that's not quite correctly worded but it, it's basically like if i have a month to finish this project it'll take a month if i have two weeks to finish this project it'll take you know two weeks so i mean it, it really um i think there's a nice thing about setting deadlines for ourselves because even if we don't get 100 percent of the way there you know we can always set one deadline and then go back and do it again a second time or a third time or fourth time. You just want to pace it out and make sure it's in the right kind of environment. So amongst friends, you know, I think is a very good way to do the first one. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, here we go. I'm, I'll be calling you up for advice. <laughs> and um, I did want to, to segue from that, um, from the several stories we've told about Castleton Festival. Mm-hmm. That you've you've had um, the opportunity between Ruggiero Ricci and Glenn Dictoro and Lauren Mazel to just and and others to work with just incredible mentors. So I just wanted to um, yeah just ask you about your time with Lauren Mazel and maybe some takeaways. He called um, his time at Castleton when he was rehearsing eight hours or performing eight hours and rehearsing the same day. He called that his vacation. I remember talking to him once and he was like, oh, this is my vacation. And I mean, it was just insane. Like one time I remember seeing him, he got the music at like probably 6 or 7 p.m. the previous night for this Flugelman cello concerto in Balsega was playing. And that night he stared at the score a couple hours, woke up at six in the morning and played through the entire violin part. He was a very fine violinist. Mm-hmm. And I was concertmaster for that work for, uh, you know, with him. So I, he, he always believed, and I, I think this is for everyone, you should do as much of all the different disciplines as possible. Solo playing, chamber music playing, orchestral playing, and composing, and even studying conducting. You don't have to be a conductor, but it's good to understand all these components because then when you come to a work, you have a much better understanding of what's going on both on the psychology level as well as the human interaction, as well as the timing. Cause yeah. most times you're breathing with people and that's very important to be able to see if, if you're a conductor and you just go, people aren't going to be with you. If you're a string player, you just go like this in some quartets. If you, they get used to you, they can do that. Mm-hmm. But, but it just kind of allows you to see, okay, what actually is clear, what's actually saying something to people and what are they just really good musicians around me? that are letting me slide with too much stuff. So I, I think that was one thing about him, but just going back to that, he learned at six in the morning, that entire thing. And then I think we had a nine or 10 AM rehearsal and he had it basically memorized. He was singing it. I mean, he was looking at the score. He never felt the need to prove anything in terms of like showing that he had it by memory, this or that he would, he would have the score in front of him. Sometimes he just found it faster to just look in his brain eight bars before letter C. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause he would have to find the page otherwise, you know, in the book. Right. <laughs> but then other times he would just open it up. He, he had no, uh, you know, any, anything about that. Um, 
that was trying to show anything. And that's what I think was really amazing is just knowing a piece that well, where you don't feel the need to really prove yourself. Mm-hmm. That that's, that's very, very hard. And, uh, I think, um, his work ethic is something that most people in their lives deal with, but not consistently for decades. Like how many people do you know that will work eight or 12 hours on a day and continue doing that for years? You can do a lot in life that way, but you also <laughs> have to give up. You have to give up certain things in life to do that. That's true. Yeah. We, um, I remember I, it was a, just a kind of random assortment of uh, people. And um, it was after Carmen. It was after one of the performances of Carmen. Mm-hmm. And Nancy Gustafson, shout out. She um, did. She said, "Everyone, um, the maestro would like to watch a movie. Come, come to the theater house." I, I, I was like, the theater house, which in Castleton is this converted chicken coop that yeah. became this beautiful <laughs> hall that was inaugurated, I think, with Rostropovich, Yefim Bronfman, and Mazel playing. Tchaikovsky piano trio. I mean, it's just the most amazing space. But it's it's very important to note that uh, you know where there's a vision, there's a way, even from a chicken. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's an incredible spot. And um, so yeah, the maestro would like to watch a movie, and she just rounded up whoever was around there, the musicians. We're like, okay, what are we going to watch? The maestro has never seen the Princess Bride, <laughs> so we <laughs> so we get in there and and. Maestro and and his wife were sitting above, like you know, in the, in way in the back of the theater, just like like the king and the queen, just presiding over this. And we just watched, you know. And uh, we heard we heard later from Nancy Gustafson that oh yes, Maestro enjoyed it very much. It was like, <laughs> 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 it's like a private viewing at some like king's house. It's so so odd, but um, yeah. But he, he he was a really hilarious and funny person when you got to know him. But very few people got to know him, I think. That's the mm-hmm. thing. But like over a drink or over a meal, I, I mean, he was one of the most uh, sincere people I've met in terms of just really standing by what he believes in. And I think uh, not being willing to do anything that deals, like gives up that integrity. I think that's that's artistic integ- integrity is very, very hard to maintain for that many years. Yeah. I believe... Um... So he studied with um, Pierre Montu, I believe. Was I think that was it? He Along with teacher. many other. Yeah. Well, he had a teacher. I, I think also he was an assistant at the Philharmonia, um, and a couple other places. I mean, um, I'm blanking on the name right now, but he he was really. I mean, Toscanini saw him at the very young age mm-hmm. and basically was like, "Oh, why don't you conduct?" He was already a conductor at a very young age, there are some people that are just born with that ability um, naturally to incline and, and basically grow in that regard very quickly. Yeah. And so I think a lot of what his career was, um, was definitely by observing, he also played in the Pittsburgh symphony and then went to night school <laughs> at the same time. So he was, he was putting himself through school, playing in the orchestra, also studying conducting and, and playing, you know, but I, I don't know, actually, in terms of his conducting studying, because he doesn't really appear to me. I mean, I know he had some people that he learned from a lot, but I don't it doesn't look like to me that um, a lot of what came out of him wasn't naturally born. I mean, certain things right. from violin playing definitely came from other people. But mm-hmm. in terms of actual conducting, 
he was just really meticulous with like improving every time. Every time he gave a concert, he would not make the same mistake twice. He said, it's fine. People can make mistakes, but don't do it twice. And now I, I come up with the addendum. I add something to that, which is don't make the same mistake twice. Otherwise it's called practicing. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> we're, we're keeping it in. We're keeping it in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man. Lauren Mazel, rest in peace. Yeah. He was great. Yeah, I miss and, him. Uh, so at your, uh, your, at your Paganini 24, um, live stream, um, uh, Mr. Dick Turow was, uh, part of the audience and mm-hmm. added a little word at the end. So, uh, what was it like studying with him or, and what are some takeaways from, from well, studying he, with him? He has been in front of like, he was the concertmaster of New York Philharmonic for 34 years and had a big solo career as well. He's, he's a professor at USC now, uh, University of Southern California. And it's kind of a connection to the past and the history, as well as the flexibility to realize music is li- alive. I think that's some of the biggest things from him. For instance, he studied with Heifetz Schering, Galamian, Noam Blinder, Manuel Kopinski, and you know had so many other experiences of people he met. And one of the biggest things I, I got from that was, you know, this variety of color in the music and the sound. Um, and to work with him and just see the actual, I mean, that's the great thing. I've been very fortunate to study with him, Mr. Perlman, Mr. Zuckerman, uh, Dorothy DeLay, a couple other people, but Robert Mann also. Some of them uh, really demonstrate very, very well. And he's, he's really great at showing in the sound what he's saying in words verbally. Some people do that more, some people do that less. But I think there's a, a place in that for every every student, you know, there's a certain balance with that, which it's great to be able to see that because I think some of the best lessons sometimes are learned by just listening to colleagues, seeing their thought process uh, or watching a performance. And you learn more from watching a Heifetz performance or a Milstein performance about violin playing, I think, than a lot of lessons can tell you. So it's, it's really being exposed to really great uh, playing and mm-hmm. then seeing how the person thinks behind it. Why are they doing what they're doing? And there's that magical unspoken, I don't know. I just feel it that way intuitively. But it comes from years of development. When I saw you, I, a couple of years ago, you said something like, it's important to know what you're doing. It's important to have a, uh, the idea of what you're doing, but to a point, like the analysis side of your playing is important to a point or something like that. I, I, I don't want to misquote you, but. Well, no, I mean, I, I definitely think it's really important to have that analysis and understanding. You can write every single harmony change and write it into the score, but then you have to get away from it because mm-hmm. the second you're starting to think of it from this distance, it's like a lot of conductors um, will analyze music and get far away from it. And to an extent you can do that when you're conducting where um, I think it doesn't always translate as easily into physical violin playing. And the reason I say that is if you're conducting yourself while you're playing, you can be doing amazing, marvelous things, but you can also be slightly removed. Yeah, And so you want to be as close to that sound as possible without physically getting tension or losing any of that kind of uh, clarity of listening. Mm-hmm. So I think um, one of the amazing things to see for me um, 
was just like, for instance, I was playing um, a string quartet for Robert Mann. Um, and I studied with him privately for solo repertoire as well. But in this one quartet, I was playing it in rhythm, but it was not in rhythm. I knew exactly what I was doing, what I was doing. I wasn't feeling it emotionally. Hmm. And that that's the entire thing. It's like, if you don't have an emotional sense of rhythm, even if you're exactly in time, a lot of times it doesn't sound in time because there's a certain kind of weight of certain rhythm, like, but if you just do, even if it's mm -hmm. like exactly in time, pretty much, you're going to feel like it doesn't have as much of a grounding in the rhythm. Even if it's like, if it's not even exactly in time, mm -hmm. if you have that sense of like, you can follow it at least to some extent. Right. And so, mm -hmm. um, I found that very meaningful. And just like in the concerto appearances, um, being able to kind of see in practice that when you're listening sometimes from the top here, you're actually doing the orchestra a disservice by not just being focusing on your sound and how it relates to the sound. Right. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to explain to somebody, um, because it's such a personal thing. I think everyone has mm -hmm. a different approach and it's slightly different for everyone, but like, um, Mr. Zuckerman once was saying in Brahms, in this section, you just have to lead. If you try to listen to what's going around you and they're trying to listen to what's going around with you, you know, then actually in this part of Brahms concerto, very often it just gets derailed and the rhythm actually gets lost. So mm -hmm. you sometimes have to just know when to lead and when to uh, accompany or when to, uh, somebody said a very good word, have a commentary. Mm. It should never be accompaniment. It should always be commentary. Hmm. Yeah. Because the... In a way, I mean, this is another Leon Fleischer idea, yeah. which is self one, self two, self three. I don't know if you heard this, but there's the the generator. Three, I'm self. curious. Okay, <laughs> there's two, the one gen and two. <laughs> There's the generating idea. You think of the music, or you conceptualize the mm -hmm. sound. Then there's the creating self, the one who's actually doing the playing, and then there's the the th the contemplating self there's the third one that hears the result and then evaluates it so it's this kind of feedback loop and sometimes when you're performing that feedback loop it's different as a performer than it is as an audience member you get to sit back and hear the final product as an audience member but as a performer everyone's creating at the same time so sometimes you don't have the luxury to be able to sit back and and feed off of what the other people are doing. You just have to strike out and do your own. You just anyway. have to be be there. And and you know, I think the best thing is when you're so in, involved emotionally in the music and you're still, you know, you've practiced this, so you have the structure. You're not losing structure by being very engaged emotionally. Then you have that complete freedom to really create at that moment. Technically, you don't have any concerns. You're able to just feel it. And the orchestra responds to that. And then you do phrasing. They force you or you force them to do phrasing that you feel could go no other way. It just, mm -hmm. at that moment, this is the way the piece should be played. Tomorrow you could feel completely differently and it's completely valid. But at that moment, it should feel like that. I, I think those are the special moments. It's like when you see a great orator and they, they say something and you're like, wow, that's amazing. And then you see the same exact words read by somebody, you know, in a very, very timid or, you know, in a way that doesn't present the idea the same way. And uh, you might think the idea is terrible just by the way it's presented. And the same with a great piece of music. The piece of music you could think, wow, this piece is just not so good. And then you hear it again another day and you're like, wow, this is a great piece of music.
Absolutely. I've, um, yeah, I, I think in, in recent years, in a way, just almost, um, for me being like in a way, kind of a late bloomer, I would consider myself. Um, (laughs) I, um, kind of waited for permission a lot of the time as an artist because I was in school and I was like waiting for permission. Is this good? Is this, but then as, as your own professional or as your own artist, where you are putting your own idea out into the world that you're convinced of for your own reasons, then all of a sudden, all of those, all of the structure makes sense. The structure exists for you to, to mold to your needs in the moment. So, well, Lauren Mazel, one of the most valuable things I got from him was learn to trust yourself or don't learn to trust yourself, just trust yourself. And I'll add one more. Every Gitless, I asked him, how do you, how are you so much yourself? Like, how do you, how do you be yourself? He said, well, if you try to be yourself, you're not yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just have to be yourself. Don't, don't try to be yourself. You simply hmm. are. <laughs> I love that. Yes. I mean, I I think too many people try to be a version of themselves as opposed to just thinking, what do I want to do? And like not putting this extra layer of separation between them and themselves. And I think that's the great difficulty. Like the inner game of tennis by Galway is it's Dorothy delay used to make that required reading for all her students Hmm. when in the earlier days. And I think there's a self one and two, not self one, two, three in that one, (laughs) but it, it has a, you know, you have the intuitive kind of just response self that just like immediately responds and just doesn't think. Then you have the thought processing one that's just thinking, okay, if I hit the ball this way, or if I play the note this way. And I think they relate so much because you have to really ingrain so many things that it becomes intuitive. Mm -hmm. And that's the actual performing part where you're not thinking constantly like, okay, is that note in tune? Is it out of tune? Wait, do I have to play it flat or sharp? You're just thinking, okay, what do I want the sound to be like? And it's just happening to mm-hmm. some extent. Yeah. <laughs> what do you have um, next for your own plan? Uh, so right now um, is a very interesting time because of COVID. Most things are canceled. I do have some projects in Hungary and Korea that are still scheduled. I'm hesitant because of the plane and COVID-19 situation, whether or not that even makes sense, even though, you know, it's a bit of time, it's November and December. So actually what I've been focusing on is a series of live stream, uh, sometimes on group muse. Also, I've been um, doing this recording project. And so we're doing several projects related to that for the string quartet. Um, And so it's been really nice because I normally am by myself doing more solo playing, although some chamber music, but it's always with different people. And you really learn a lot about yourself when you're with people for a much longer period of time. And uh, like with, with your string quartet, you know, it was really fun for me to see that Raymond Scott, Mm -hmm. because it was the first time I was hearing the music and it just made me think about how different every quartet can be. Cause quartet San Francisco, the sound is just so different than any other quartet I've seen and the arrangements and the music. And so, you know, that's, that's something that, Every, every performance you learn about. And Raymond Scott, that performance was in California when I saw it in uh, LA area. And I just remember thinking like, that was in Looney Tunes, some of this music. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so you get these earworms. And uh, yeah, so, so no, I, I do have um, a lot of time for reflection, which I'm really enjoying. 
I was at one point during this pandemic doing about three streams a week. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a bit too much, I think. So it's, it's nice to actually just think about the next steps. And I'm planning on actually recording the 24 Caprices next, probably uh, starting in November. So I'm going to take my time now to just really try to work on them and get them into a place where I feel like this is my version of it. Because you play it over and over and you're like, I would change that. I would. I want. I want to see how close I can get to something where I'm happy at least for a week with one version. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. I mean, I was. I after seeing that uh, live stream, I was like, man, when is he going to record these? <laughs> you have it in your fingers right now. It's time. It's time. To yeah, I'm really. But, I'm really glad to hear that. Well, next time you do it. <laughs> first you i can be your producer this time you did me last oh you, you were producer for me last <laughs> yeah okay all right it's a deal eric silberger will produce my 24 <laughs> yeah. album um it's only fair um sounds good somebody has to do it someone has uh, has to go through that ordeal um <laughs> no but uh i will i will do it for that i think that um that takeaway of I, and I think, yeah, I read it in Arnold Steinhardt, who I, I had a lesson with. I don't know him. Some of the best well, books ever also. Great, yeah. great author too. And great tremendous, violinist. Yeah. Tremendous violinist, tremendous author. And um, and he said something interesting in one of his books, which, you know, in his late 20s, early 30s, around where I am in my life, he is, he, he, uh, Guarneri was taking off. And, and he said, yeah, around late 20s, he's like, you don't really have time to learn concertos anymore. And I'm like, you know, I was reading this as a young guy and I'm like, oh no, there's a time limit, <laughs> you know, gotta get gotta cram them in. But I mean, I think it's, uh, it's true in one sense and not in another. It's like, you can always, depending on what you have to do, people, people learn concertos if they have to. Um, it's much harder when you're a professional with commitments and yeah. job and everything to to have a really ambitious project like that yeah no I, it's it's very true when you know you have all those concerts going on and you're constantly on the road and it's important to have that time also for your personal life and, and to balance that part of human life because at the end of the day i think music comes out of life and life out of music to some extent too um and so i think that that aspect is really the hardest balance to find it's like uh, Achilles in the Iliad. He had uh, two options. One was he could be remembered for all of history, you know, putting himself, but, you know, he would have a tragic end potentially, or in this case, definitely in retrospect. <laughs> um, or option two is he could go back and have a great family life, but, you know, he wouldn't be immortalized in the annals of history. And I think that's an interesting question for any person. You know, what, what is it that you want to come out of life with? Mm -hmm. And uh, myself personally, that's something I, I try to figure out the balance of each day. Um, because if you don't pursue things in one side too much, you can actually lose the energy for the other side a little bit. So I think there's right. a balance between the two. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and I mean, this, um, <laughs> this little podcast that uh, you are currently on is a, it's an interesting little experiment where I have a little extra time given the lack of commuting, especially, um, and just teaching. It gives me time to do a little something extra with my time. Mm -hmm. And then I also find this, this balance I have to strike of like, oh yeah, it's social media. You have to like 
get things out there. You have to work. And, and when you're your own business owner, you can put exactly how much time you want. And the same thing with violin. You can put as much time into it as you want. There's always more you can do. <laughs> right? The great and great, the, the greatness of living a life. Oh gosh, this is a weird quote to make on the spot. <laughs> the greatness of life is the tragedy of seeing far enough because you've tried. <laughs> Dang. Seeing far enough because you've tried. Can you break that down, one down? <laughs> no, because the, the further you try, the, the harder you try and to realize a goal, the more you see of just how much more you can do. You don't even right. realize when you're initially starting out. That's why a lot of people mm-hmm. say, if I, was, if I knew what I knew now, I would never even bother trying. It's because you just gradually see so much more and there's really no other way other than just trying. So the right. great tragedy is now that you've tried, you know, you just see so much. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The The further you get, the more you realize yeah. is out there. Yeah. I, I like your quote though. We're going to make that the, the motto <laughs> of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that'd be a fun one. If everyone had for, for one week of their life every year, just come up with like their own personal quotes. <laughs> I'm not modern. sure if I would choose. <laughs> but, hey, well, uh, you know, I, I believe Yasha Heifetz had Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, as, as part of his way of living. At least Ika really? Gus, yeah, had that quoted in her book about him. But for you, I'm just curious, what are your personal models? Ah, well, I mean, the, I, um, the one that I don't espouse, but um, I enjoy the idea of is Frei aber einsam. And that's uh, Joseph Joachim's personal motto. It's kind of a sad one, free but lonely. That's Why do you not think really... uh, Brahms hated it? <laughs> I mean, he didn't take the FAE at all, pretty much. Oh, right. So then somebody, a professor at Juilliard once said, uh, you know, well, I don't think it's Frei aber einsam because Brahms didn't like that. So it was Frei aber fro, Frei aber fro. Which is why his Brahm, the Brahms and Nonsats is da 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 dum da 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 dum. Ah, I'll leave that for people to look up. Okay. I like it. I don't know if it's true, but it is to me now. Well, you know, you create your own reality. Yeah. So my motto, you're asking me? Yeah. Um, let's see. German or English? Beides funktioniert. Oh my God. Ich habe nicht so viel Deutsch gesprochen. Ja, ich auch nicht. Ja, aber ja, auf Deutsch. Kein Problem. Ja. Essen nicht zu viel und spiel viel Musik. That sounds that's like eat, live, laugh, and love. Eat not too much. Yeah, don't eat too much. And play music. <laughs> um, that's the worst motto, but um, that's the best I could come up with. Well, it, it basically could be related to the idea of moderation. And yeah. music is, if you're a musician, music is part of your life. It's not separate. Yeah. So those are yeah. two nice things. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll go with it then. <laughs> Eric, we've gone an hour and ten. Yeah. Do you have any, um, any, uh, let's see, does anything also be really fun to cover? 
I mean, a thousand things we could we could talk forever. We could do a Joe Rogan podcast and talk we for six could. hours. We could. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do that sometime. Unfortunately, I have to go teach soon. Yeah, I know. But, um, <laughs> but Eric is a pleasure as always. No, always a pleasure. And uh, everyone, check out his album. It's coming out soon. We'll put the links everywhere. Thank you. All right. Take care out there in Hawaii. Yeah, and see you soon.